Hey guys, how's Morning. it going? Good. So this is our, our third episode. So I thought I thought we could maybe like rank our episodes so far. So we did the first one on uh, on the electoral college, second one on primaries. Today we're doing one on ranked choice voting. So to to get us in the mood, uh, you know. Let's, let's rank them. Like, what, what order would you rank them so far? Uh, Julia? I love them all. It's like asking me to pick a favorite child. Well, well you got to decide. Uh, I'm going to rank today's first, and then uh, then the Electoral College, and then the primaries. What about what about you, James? I'm going to do the same. I'm going to take my cue from Julia. Yeah, I, I think today's going to be the best one yet. And I think primaries, and then I think Electoral College. There was a lot yeah. of optimism here. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we, we rank things great. all the time. So, so why not rank choice voting? Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about why our political institutions are failing and ideas for fixing them. In each episode, we'll talk through a proposal for reform, sharing what we know and what we don't know. We'll try to question our own assumptions about how politics works and get beyond the red versus blue to really big ideas. I'm James Walner, Senior Fellow at the R Street Institute. I'm Julia Azari, Associate Professor at Marquette University. And I'm Lee Drutman, a Senior Fellow in the Political Reform Program at New America. On today's episode, we're going to look at how we vote. Uh, we're asking whether ranked choice voting deserves the hype it's getting, or whether it's just a bright, shiny object that's mistaken for a silver bullet by many people. Are single winner first past the post elections underappreciated? So today, before we get started, I thought we would kind of touch base and figure out where everybody is on ranked choice voting. I think, Lee, everyone in the universe probably knows where you are. I love it. So you love ranked choice voting. You're 100% on board, uh, yeah. full on. You're a partisan uh, of ranked choice voting. I, I am. What about you guys? I'm a little skeptical about ranked choice voting. I guess I could be I could be convinced, but uh, this fall, I don't know. I, I thought a lot about it, and I I'm a skeptic of a lot of reforms. Normally, I'm a skeptic, but I, you know, and I think in the interest of today's discussion, I'm I don't really know what to think about ranked choice voting. I have a lot of questions as about everything, but I'm looking forward to the conversation. I'm looking forward to Lee persuading me that this is the solution to all our problems. Uh, and as we jump into that, I think what we should do here is talk briefly about the history and kind of the current practice where ranked choice voting is used. I think it would be helpful to to look at the impact of ranked choice voting or the um, impact that we expect it to have in primaries and in general elections. Maybe then look at some of the implications and then finally some of the alternatives to ranked choice voting that are out there. How does that sound? Yeah, that's a great plan. Yeah, well, and we'll talk about what it what it is, Lee. What, what is it? Yeah, what Lee, is why it? don't you uh, Why don't you get us started on this journey of ours here and tell us all about? Ranked choice voting. It's like a political listicle, you know? Your favorite candidates ranked. And so, what does that mean for for normal people? For normal people, it means that when you go to the uh, your poll on election day, instead of just picking one candidate, you can pick several. You rank them in order. Uh, and then your votes are counted. Uh, and each candidate is uh, eliminated from the bottom up. As they get eliminated, their votes transfer to second choice preference of of their their supporters, and, and until you get a majority. So let's let's do an example. Like, say it was a presidential election in the first round. Uh, you know, Donald Trump gets forty percent. Hillary Clinton gets forty percent. Let's say Gary Johnson gets 12% and Jill Stein gets 8%. So Jill Stein is eliminated first. She's last. All of her supporters go to Hillary Clinton. Clinton's now at 48%. She doesn't have a majority yet. So now we go to Gary Johnson's supporters. They split. 
half uh, for Trump, half for Clinton. Clinton's over the top, 54%. She's the winner. So how does this differ from how we pick our uh, president or other uh, elected officials today? Well, the way we do it today is is uh, just simple plurality. So whoever gets the most votes in the first round wins. But that means that if there's an opposition, people can split. It means that people don't necessarily get to vote for the candidate that they want the best. It means that, you know, that basically our choices wind up being lim- limited down to, to just two in, in most elections. Or you wind up having spoilers and then everybody feels like the system is unfair. So this, this solves those problems. And who are some of the candidates that have been elected with less than a majority vote, say, in the presidential election? Oh, pretty much. Yeah, quite, every, a, quite a quite, few of quite, them. Quite a number. I mean, there's a difference between, I want to make sure we're really clear about this, there's a difference between the handful of candidates who have been elected with with not a plurality, right, who have lost the popular vote and won in the Electoral College, which if you are curious about that, you should check out our first episode on the Electoral College, and then the ones who've won with less than 50% of the votes. So that list is we've got um, Bill Clinton, Woodrow Wilson, or some of the prominent examples of that, Richard Nixon in 1968. But just to clarify, Lee, so when, when we're talking about the, the, the Jill Stein, Gary Jacobson, Hillary Clinton, <coughs> Donald Trump example, Jill Stein supporters would go to Clinton because they had ranked Clinton as second, yes. right? So you have a, you have an opportunity as a voter to rank your choice, to really give a lot of information about yeah. your preferences. It's, it's more expressive. So uh, before we get into some of the implications of what this could, how this could play out or could have played out in, say, the 2016 election, let's talk about the history. I mean, where did ranked choice voting come from? Like, did the clouds part? Did it come down from on high? I think so. Was it delivered on stone tablets on the top of Mount Sinai? Obviously. Obviously, yeah. 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 I mean, that's, that's where all good ideas come no, from. Where, where, where did, why are we just now hearing about ranked choice voting? I mean, well, how long have we been talking about well, this? Well, I mean, Australia's been using it for 100 years. It was it was uh, developed by some British mathematicians in the 1840s. John Stuart Mill was a big proponent of it uh, back in the day. Uh, and it, yeah, but Australia was the first country to adopt it nationwide. And Ireland also uses a, a version of it, a multi-winner version. So does Malta. Uh, a couple other countries, Fiji, Papua New Guinea have adopted it. Uh, and a bunch of cities have uh, used it. So it sounds like and today in our current practice, it's primarily used in the United States on a municipal level. Yeah, so fair? so there are a handful of cities. San Francisco is is uh, uh, probably the biggest city that uses it. Minneapolis, St. Paul, uh, Portland, Maine, uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico just passed it. It's being considered in Nashville, Tennessee. It's it's catching on. It's hot, 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 hot. What's the practice look like in these places? What are the what are the results? What are people saying about it? People What's like the buzz? it. People like it in the cities where where they use it. And they feel like campaigns have become uh, more more civil. Uh, people are happier. People say the system is is simple and easy to use. People are more engaged. Voter turnout is up. Uh, the record is good. Julia, you mentioned that you're a skeptic of of ranked choice voting, or at least you're playing one for purposes of today's discussion. What about the arguments for ranked choice voting? I mean, you know, more positive elections, higher turnout. Why are you skeptical about these? So I'm skeptical in part because there's some evidence that it that it exacerbates turnout differentials. And you can kind of see intuitively why that would be the case. That if you're a high education voter, 
it's easy for you to think about this whole ranked thing and you kind of have a trust that the people who are counting the ballots are counting things in a in a reasonable way. But, you know, if you're not someone with who's used to this sort of complicated stuff, if you're not a very high attention voter, you don't really get how it works. Um, this was brought to my attention by some folks in Maine when I was there this fall that, you know, what, what some people kind of saw there in Maine with the ranked choice voting was like a bunch of people on TV do some magic and then the votes are tabulated. And it adds to that mystery or that sense that it's, the voting is complicated. And like I said, this isn't just an assessment of you know, based on that one example, I think there is some evidence that that it exacerbates that turnout difference. I guess I don't care that much about civility and campaigning. I think Lee cares a lot more about that. Like, I think of all the different trade-offs to make, I don't know that I would make a lot of trade-offs based on that. Um, there's also evidence in the broader comparative politics literature that electoral institutions that more clearly translate votes into outcomes – improve turnout. And so the more complicated it is, the more likely it is that people will will stay away or they won't they won't sort of see obviously how their vote translates into an outcome. And it seems possible to me that RCV could get could get caught up in that. So those are some of the some of the sources of skepticism that I've seen. I also saw kind of in a similar vein some research that suggests that people get kind of ballot fatigue when they're presented with this kind of ballot and then they just don't rank the preferences all the way down. Um, and that can have implications for the percentage of support that the eventual winner actually gets. So there's, you know, I was kind of looking through this political science about it uh, this morning, and it is a little bit mixed as far as some of these normative things that people care about. There was there was evidence about civility in campaigns, but there was also evidence about turnout differentials and about ballot exhaustion and things like that. So to bring in the complexity issue and the turnout issue together, what would have happened in 1824 had we had ranked choice voting for the presidential election, right? Would All Jackson right, so, have won? So so let's spell out 1824, <laughs> what happens in 1824. Uh, give, a, give us the specifics yeah. of I mean, 1824. You, so, you have a race for president. Yeah. You wanna, for our listeners at home so who, who may not, Andrew might Jackson, not be immediately familiar with You have a four-way race the, for the president. The four-way you have, race. You have uh, Crawford. William, is it William Crawford? It's William Crawford. From Georgia yeah. coming in last. He was the pick of uh, the kind of the caucus, if you will, in Congress. You have Henry Clay. You have John Quincy Adams. And you have uh, Andrew Jackson. And no one gets a majority in the Electoral College. It goes to the House of Representatives. And Clay and Adams have this kind of bargain. And the House votes for Adams. And Jackson doesn't come in um, first, even though he got the most votes. And what I find interesting about this is that that was an impetus for a Van Buren to develop a new kind of party system and to develop a new kind of structure to go out and, and ultimately prevail. And he backed Jackson and Jackson then won in 1828. And then after that, because of this creation of this new mass party, you see turnout going up, you know, almost to 80% approximately after the Whigs are formally in as well, if the Jacksonian Democrats. So I guess my question is how much of it is the, the party structure and how much of it is the way in which we're voting? Yeah, that's a good question. I was actually just thinking about it's the same thing with 1860, which is also a four-person race. You know, would would Abraham Lincoln have been president? Just thinking about it off the top of my head, I think there's a good chance that John Quincy Adams would have ended up president under ranked choice voting too. I've just pulled up the the 1824 results right. hot off we're hot gonna, off of Wikipedia. Um, get down Andrew Jackson, forty-one percent. John Quincy Adams, thirty-one percent. Crawford. 
11, uh, Clay 13%, Crawford 11%. So, uh, I mean, would we assume that Crawford's votes would have gone to, to, to Jackson probably and Clay's votes would have gone to, to, uh, to, to, to Adams? But the reason I bring this up is because it, it also highlights the, the complexity issue and the information problem that voters face, right? When you go into the ballot box or you go into the polls and you want to cast your vote and put it in the ballot box at the end, you have to make a decision. And how many voters knew who Henry Clay was? How many voters know who what William Crawford stands for, right? And so you get further down that list and you start ranking these voters and it's like, well, I mean, they, presumably most people know who Andrew Jackson is. He's the hero of New Orleans, right? He's, he's a, this very kind of charismatic figure, but beyond that, it's unclear, right? And so even today, I mean, I, you know, I consider myself someone who follows politics. I go into the ballot, you know, into to vote and I see these, and I'm like, who are half of these names on this ballot? Um, and, and it's hard to make this kind of informed choice well, well, they presumably would have party labels, and you know who the parties are. And if you have more choices, you are likely to to pay attention to more party labels. I mean, m- most democracies have more than two parties, and people are able to keep track of five to six, seven parties. So, I mean, th- these these candidates wouldn't necessarily be running as independents. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the 1824 example doesn't go that far because it's just a much different kind of context. Yeah, I mean, I I sort of wonder about, like, there's a lot of assumptions behind this about the kinds of candidates that you're going to get, that this assumes that, for example, to go back to the more contemporary, the Jill Stein, Hillary Clinton, that people have some sense of, you know, who's a green and then who is the second choice from the greens, and that people think about politics. I mean, I think there's an assumption that comes from comparative politics, that people think about politics spatially. And you might think, well, I prefer the party that's furthest left or furthest right, but my second choice, and I want to express that in the ballot box, my second choice is the center-left or center-right party. And I can also express that. And I think that's the underlying logic, right? But it's not totally clear to me anymore that that's what's important in American politics. I mean, I think there are obviously the issue positions make sense. But like when people cast votes for smaller parties, I think part of that is you know they're expressing a systemic frustration. And I'm not sure that RCV, I mean, maybe it does capture that a little bit better. I'm not sure that it captures it better in a sort of truly meaningful way. Well, the Australian uh, example suggests that it does, that it allows people to blow off some steam and vote for for some further out parties uh, and and express their preference. I mean, U.S. voter turnout is incredibly low by comparative standards, and there are a number of reasons for that. But I think one is just the limited field of candidates that you have more candidates running uh, because they're not spoilers in a, in a ranked choice system. And you get more people engaged in the process. So contrary to the argument that it's too complicated, <coughs> I think it actually, you, the more candidates, the more parties who are out there competing, they're, they're mobilizing voters, they're bringing people into the process. And uh, whatever, whatever complexity that adds to the system, I think the, the, the greater choice more than makes up for it. And frankly, it's not that complex. I mean, you know, it, it, it's new to people in the way that like a word processor was new to people who are used to a typewriter. But y- you do it once or twice and, and people get used to it. I mean, 92% of people in Minneapolis said that the system was simple. So the, the reason why I, I wanted to briefly touch base on the history and the and how this concept emerged, because it's a very different time than the time in which we 
occupy today, right? And so if you think about back then, what are the problems that ranked choice voting was envisioned to to solve, right? What its proponents, what what kind of problems did its proponents want this system to solve? And if you think about the the development of new parties, the development of new issues, a lot of this stuff was happening already, right? You had this in the 1820s where you had people basically making these informal coalitions and simplifying issues, right? You had it in the 1850s with the emergence of the Republican Party. There was a decision. Should we be a more of a nativist American, know-nothing type um, direction? Or should the other major party be more based on abolition? And, and these things kind of happened either organically or within these institutions called political parties or emerging new political parties. And it sounds like that's in that moment, that's when ranked choice voting came on the scene, or at least the well, idea. And- Today, what we're asking for it to solve a, a different problem, right? Yeah. Which is, it seems like there's no choices, that everything's too polarized, that we can't, that we don't have a meaningful experience when we try to participate in politics. And so therefore, ranked choice voting is going to solve that problem. But to what extent is that problem a result of our electoral system? Or to what extent is it because our parties aren't operating like they used to? Well, I think, I think we're asking our parties to do the impossible in a two-party system. And you know, we have a diverse country, and to, to shoehorn everything into just two political coalitions uh, I, that are two, two long coalitions that form parties, I, I think, is asking our parties to do the impossible. And so our parties can't really stand for anything because they're trying to, to encompass too much. We should break them up and have more parties that actually stand for clearer things and represent more of the electorate. Yeah, and I think ranked choice voting would. I mean, frankly, if if I have a criticism of ranked choice voting, is it doesn't go far enough in doing that, which is why I'd like something more along the lines of proportional representation, in which you'd you'd have votes translate more directly into seats. I mean, I, I'd blow up the whole single winner system, uh, but I think ranked choice voting is a it takes us a little bit of the way there, and is certainly a more politically feasible reform. One of the reasons that I think we're talking about it is because the citizens of Maine approved it twice. And, uh, you know, it's it's caught on there because they had a very unpopular governor, who Paula Page, who won twice as just a, with just a mere plurality because the opposition was split. And that's the problem that ranked choice voting is trying to solve today is, is when you have an opposition that's split and one, one person becomes a spoiler. I mean, in 2000, a lot of people turned to ranked choice voting because they thought Ralph Nader had, had cost Gore the election because there were a lot of voters who certainly would have preferred Gore to Bush, but they voted for Ralph Nader, not understanding how they were going to spoil the election. When we're talking about the presidential election, it's really unclear how this would translate into the Electoral College, which is like a whole nother can of worms that I... See, episode one. Right. Listen to episode one. I don't think... I'm still talking, Dr. Drutman. Yes. Because I think you're really wrong about the theories that underlie voter turnout. Um, I don't think that people don't vote because they don't have enough choices or because they they don't feel, you know, their preferences are directly translating into action. I mean, I think people do think that way, but I don't know that that's a driving feature behind lack of voter turnout. I think some of it is they don't really, people feel alienated by the process. And I think there's even some, people feel anxious about complicated civic processes. They're worried about doing something wrong. They're worried they're going to sort of mess up their vote somehow, or they don't understand where their polling place is or what they do when they vote. And I think ranked choice voting has a – I don't think it necessarily makes that worse, but I think it has a lot of potential to make that worse. And I I also agree with you. If we want multiple parties, that's not really the way to do it. This is the way to make 
you know, slightly stronger Green Party so that maybe some people who feel frustrated, you know, if they have to vote for the Republican instead of the Libertarian or the, the Democrat instead of the Green, it make those people feel better. Um, and that might improve turnout at the margins, but I don't think it's going to improve actual political expression, right? And that's one of the questions I have about Australia. I know nothing about Australian politics, really. But I'm curious about the idea of blowing off steam. And at what point that isn't particularly satisfying unless minor parties have a real seat at the table. That's the part that, you know, I feel like that's, you know, the fact that you can vote for that person in an expressive way without without participating in spoilers is like only a little bit satisfying and really barely scratches the surface of these deeper dissatisfactions. Yeah, and this touches on a topic that I think it'd be helpful to return to at the end, which is when we talk about alternatives to to ranked choice voting or alternative solutions to the problems that we see today. Because there is this notion that our problems are electoral in nature, or maybe it's because of the way in which we conduct our politics more broadly and the way in which our institutions work. And I think many people look at our elections as the be-all and end-all, and we can solve them. And there's certainly places for them to be improved, and ranked choice voting may be one of them. Um, but it's unclear if that's the only change that we make. And I'm not suggesting you're arguing for this, Lee, that everything else becomes all fine and good. But let's, let's jump into the impact. I mean, we mentioned primaries versus general elections. I mean, let's talk about primaries for a second. I mean, how would ranked choice voting play out in, the, in, a, in a primary field today? Right. So one argument uh, for ranked choice is that, is that it actually helps to solve a coordination problem. And the, the coordination problem is greatest in the primaries, right? So there are a lot of, right now, there are a lot of a lot of Democrats who support Bernie Sanders, but there are a lot of probably even more Democrats who feel like, well, we, we really don't want Sanders to win, but we can't coordinate on, on who the alternative is in the same way that a lot of Republicans in 2016 uh, didn't like Trump, but they couldn't coordinate on on the alternative. So Trump was was the was the most hated Republican candidate in 2016, but also the most beloved. And arguably, if you had had a ranked choice system, <coughs> that the party could have coordinated around one alternative, who would have been you know, if some people wanted Cruz, some people wanted Rubio, some people wanted Jeb, they would have ranked th- those other those other candidates second or third, and eventually those votes would have transferred, and you would have created a, a majority opposition around Trump. Uh, you know, in a similar way, I think if Bernie Sanders is maybe preferred by about a third of the Democratic voters, but two thirds want somebody else, but they can't agree on who that somebody else is, ranked choice voting allows them to to wind up coordinating so that you don't have a candidate who wins with only a third in a crowded field who doesn't actually represent the majority <coughs> preference of that field. I think that that all makes good sense to me. I think the way that it would work in primaries, like I think that's built on sound theory, unlike some of the argument, other arguments. But I also think that the Making primaries more complicated is a delicate thing. Um, and that's an indictment of, of the primary system, not of the argument. But I do think it's, a, you know, if we're thinking about how to implement these kinds of changes, that's pretty critical. Well, I think one reason why primaries strike us as very complicated is that parties solve problems for voters. They make voting easier. That's why after Van Buren's mass party was created, voting participation went through the roof. And it's why after progressive reforms, where they really limited the power of the parties in the turn of the 20th century, voting participation started to decline. It's not the only reason, but it's a major reason. And parties can't play that same role in primaries. So therefore, it makes sense that the turnout is not as great in primaries, and it's a lot more complicated. And and you add this on top of it, it could make it even more complicated. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think 
I think it's really complicated. I think there's just a lot of there's a lot of trade-offs. I think the this is a whole other topic, but I think public preferences about how primaries should work are really um, difficult to understand. And so I guess thinking about implementing this in primaries, if the same logic sort of applies, that this would allow for more different kinds of candidates to enter the race, right? Like that's what part of the argument of, of RCV is that it allows for more minor parties if we're if we're talking about the general election that same logic should apply in the primary i feel like having more different kinds of campaigns for a presidential primary is not is not a problem we're facing right now well i mean yeah that, that ship has already sailed <laughs> uh, and, and it's way out to sea um, I mean, in some ways, it, I mean, I mean, ranked choice voting actually solves the problem of of, of too much proliferation because it allows people to coordinate. Right? I mean, for for a lot of voters, they might say, "Well, you know, I like a bunch of these candidates, but you know, maybe I like Elizabeth Warren, but I don't think she'll win. So maybe I should pick somebody else who I think can win." And and that creates this sort of complicated strategic calculus, whereas ranked choice voting takes away that calculus. You can vote for the candidate you like the best without feeling like you're wasting your vote. So I think it solves a proliferation problem that maybe it creates a little bit, but it, you know, like like alcohol, the the, uh, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. You heard it here first. Lee is, is advocating <laughs> I, I, for some hair of the dog. I'm, I'm, I'm quoting the Simpsons. Yeah, there's a famous Homer Simpson line, alcohol, the, the, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. All right, no. So let's talk about some of the benefits of, of ranked choice voting and how we expect it to impact either a primary or a general election. And one of the key claims is that it would make our campaigns more civil, right? So and what, what's the basis of that? Why do you, what's the theory underlying that claim? Well, the basis of that is that when you have more candidates who are competing to be uh, each other's second and third choices, you get candidates who, who don't attack each other as much. And this is also the logic of a multi-candidate election in which, in a, in a two-candidate election, going negative can help you because it's a lesser of two evils problem. And if you're just trying to make the other candidate look worse, you benefit. But in a multi-candidate election, the backfire effect is likely to to hurt you more, and you take down another candidate, and somebody else might win. So it encourages candidates to be a little more <coughs> circumspect in 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 attacking and in going incredibly negative against other candidates. But now, does the twenty sixteen Republican primary not disprove that? I mean, you had a multi candidate election. You had lots of people out on the stage for debates in particular, and you had say Donald Trump and Marco Rubio going after each other, and. Donald Trump ultimately prevails in Marco Rubio's home state and wins every county except for Marco Rubio's own county. Sure. I mean, I don't fuck civility, I don't care. Um that's my viewpoint on the on the bigger Tell principle of think. the thing. Gladly. So, I'm not sure I can explain the tone of the 2016 primary in electoral system terms, but I think that's a good point. That's a reasonable objection. I think also what I mean, what underlies the logic of this argument is that RCV will allow people to blow off steam at the extremes, but also essentially preserve a kind of bipolar system. And I think if the underlying logic of the system remains fundamentally sort of Republican Democrat, it's still going to be uncivil. I also just don't think that that's that's a useful goal in electoral reform is to have less negative elections. I'm not totally sold on the impact on turnout. For example, if we're going to talk, if we're going to talk turnout, the history of 
voter turnout studies and negativity over the last 30 years has, has turned up some changing findings. There's a classic study from the late 1980s that suggests that negative ads depress turnout, particularly among independents. But then there's you know, there's more recent research that suggests that these are the things that get people to the polls. Um, is this sort of fear that the other party will win? And is that perfect? No. But now, since we're quoting people, right, this is the worst system in the world, democracy, other than all the others. Um, I think that's just a cost. I think the reason we have instability in our politics is, you know, probably somewhat driven by the by the two-party nature, but I think it's also driven by the nature of the problems, um, and that's what needs to be solved. And so I don't think that the, you know, I'm, I'm just not, maybe, maybe it would make politics more civil. I just don't care. I mean, a, a certain amount of, of negativity in politics is, is fine. And, and that's, and it's accountability on those terms. But I mean, there, there are also studies that show that high negativity reduces trust and faith in institutions and just just makes people feel really cynical about the whole the whole process of politics. So I mean, there, there's a there's a fine balance there. I mean, I, you know, if, if everything is kumbaya and it's all civility, then how do voters you know decide between parties, right? I mean, I mean, too much consensus in a politics is, I think, a, a, an equally troubling problem. So I have a question. Let's think about the 2000 campaign. If Nader had appeared to be a a threat because of a ranked choice voting system, would not have the main candidates then behave differently and adopted different strategies? Or say, in the 2016 campaign, does it make sense maybe not necessarily to be supportive of a third-party candidate, but to attack that third-party candidate, to depress their support, right? I mean, it, the logic of negative campaigning, it seems, would extend beyond the first choice into the second, third, and fourth choices, right? And so why would we not see that dynamic manifest itself? Well, I, I don't think that's the case. I, I mean, I think the you, you would you would court their supporters, and you know, Hillary Clinton would say, "Hey, look, great, vote for Jill Stein, great, but vote for me second. Uh, Jill Stein's not going to win, but hey, if if she excites you and you want to get out to the polls, uh, but I mean, the, but you I, could I, also I, equally say Jill Stein's a fraud. I support what Jill Stein supports. Vote for me because I'm the real deal, which is essentially but, what, Ronald, what Donald Trump did with with Ted Cruz on immigration um, during the Republican primary, right? Well, so I think what Lee's trying to say here. Now I'm going to channel Lee, having disagreed with you for the last twenty minutes. All right, <laughs> what a, you can tell me if I'm wrong. All right. But so I this mean, is the kind of cooperation that we're trying to build here. Right. Exactly. I'm going to cooperate. I'm going to cooperate with you despite our deep disagreements. All right. The system is working. <laughs> Our disagreements aren't really that deep either, other than your misreading of the voter turnout literature. But the um, <laughs> sick burn. <laughs> um, no, I think the issue there is that whether whether or not the competition is zero sum, right? Is that the the assumption? And I, there was some evidence for this, right? In some races where they've adopted ranked choice voting, is that the the bigger the, the more mainstream candidate who's likely to get the larger vote share can explicitly say, go ahead and vote for that person first, just make sure you pick me second, and not understand that voting as zero sum, there's at least two challenges there. One is the predictability of the system and assuming that, that that's the way candidates and their campaign managers are going to think. At the, they're going to assume, well, I, I know I'm going to get 40% of the vote and this person's going to get 12 so 
fine, and we're going to act accordingly. I don't know if we we can count on all of those pieces falling into place. And the other one I think is just like flat out, this is going to be me being a little more squishy. The other thing I think is just flat out the sort of norms and culture of campaigns. If it's acceptable, which it is in our system to to say the other candidate is a fraud, and it's weird maybe even to praise someone who's not in your party, then, you know, that's what people will do. So, you know, it's not obvious to me that that culture is going to, like, that kind of cultural shift is going to just automatically happen because the voting system changes. Well, it's more likely to happen with a different voting system. Right. That's undoubtedly that's undoubtedly true, although I don't know that we see a lot of attacking of third-party candidates now because they're pretty minor. Well, and, and also, the I mean, all the energy flows into the two major parties because there's no third parties are, are just seen as, as fringe spoilers. I, mean, I think what you'd see is you'd see more energy and resources flowing into third parties under this right choice voting system, and you'd see more serious candidates using this this as a way to 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 run. I see I the way I see it is you have a system that if if it works as in, as described, you get more people on the extremes articulating extreme positions, rallying up supporters who then still don't have any real access to power and then while preserving the bipolarity of the two-party system. So I think there's a distinct possibility of the worst of all possible worlds. I've become more skeptical about this over the course right. of this podcast. Well, then, <laughs> then, then what we should really have is a multi-party system. So, okay, let's take it this way. What are the implications of this? If we were to adopt this, right, we, get, we can talk about the benefits and how it, you know, it, it may make campaigning more civil or the cost it may be too complex for voters to understand. But what are the implications? If this were in place today in, say, congressional and presidential elections, ranked choice voting, how, how would we see it, the impacts play out in our politics in between elections? Well, I, that's a good question. That is a good question. It's, I think it's really hard to think about how, again, how it would scale up to a presidential contest. Because if you think about if I can go down this rabbit hole for like 60 seconds. All right. Okay. I'll we, time you. We think about a situation in which you have ranked choice voting to determine who gets the who gets all the electoral college votes in a given state. How that's going to work. I see that first of all, I see that as being just profoundly alienating to to a lot of voters, but I also see the possibility that that might open up more space for more different kinds of of parties and candidates to contend for the presidency, which, again, which increases the likelihood that there's no one with an electoral college majority, which leads the election into the House, which is the outcome we were talking about in 1824. So I think in order to implement this at the presidential level, you have to really, like, someone really needs to sit down and think about how this would scale up with the electoral college. And that would, it would either have to be accompanied by changing that system or have to be, like I said, really thought through very carefully. But how would it work in Congress? And I think that's fair. But how would it work in Congress? Well, I think it would would potentially bring in some new new parties into Congress here and there. I think you, contrary to Julia, I think I think you'd actually see a few moderate candidates being able to win uh, using this system. You'd see a few centrist candidates winning, um, which could create a, a kind of a kind of swing block in in. The Senate or the House uh, that might might be sort of independent of both parties. Um, you know, I think you'd. I, I, I just think you'd you'd create a, a more diversity of representation, which would give you more fluid coalitions, which I think would make Congress function much more effectively. 
And are there other ways of getting at this, though? Right? Well, I mean, more party. I mean, I mean, lean into to a more proportional system, and you'd get even more of that. Uh, I mean, ranked choice voting might just be the gateway to to getting us there. Right, but I mean, we we hear a lot about the the two party runoff, for instance. We hear about ranked choice voting, multi party democracy, all these different alternatives, but they're all primarily electoral in nature, right? I mean, yeah, but. What are the differences? You want to walk us through the differences between the two-party runoff and the ranked choice voting system? Yeah. So two-round system is what a lot of countries use for, for their presidential elections. France is probably the most well-known example to, to the U.S. Um, also, California has a version of this in their, their top two primary in which the, the top two candidates in the – it's essentially a two-round system. It really shouldn't be called a primary. Uh, in which it's just the two, the top two candidates in the first round face off each other in the second round, and then mathematically you have to get a majority. Uh, you can't win with a mere plurality. So, comparative literature s- suggests that that tends to produce more more moderate candidates. Now, I mean, the ranked choice voting is an alternative to that. It one, it's, it creates an instant. It's essentially, it's an instant runoff, which is why ranked choice voting is sometimes called instant runoff. I mean, I think it, again, it, it solves the, the the problem of voters in, in the two-round system. Voters have to vote a little strategically. They're trying to figure out who can get to the second round, whereas in the ranked choice voting uh, system, voters can just choose their preference. I think you, you saw this in California where Democrats had a bunch of candidates running in in some of these congressional seats, and they couldn't quite coordinate on, on who was going to be the, the front runner. They, they wound up barely doing it. But if they had a ranked choice voting system, that wouldn't have been a problem. Because again, in, in a crowded field, it allows you to, to, to pick the candidate you want most without wasting your vote. So I think that's the real, that's the real benefit. It, it also costs less money uh, in terms of implementing one round as opposed to two rounds. And in the second round, I mean, turn, if you're worried about voters not participating, often voters turn out less in the second round, particularly low, low information, uh, low engagement voters, uh, because that's another round. And then if their preferred candidate didn't make it, they're sort of disengaged. So I, I think the, the, the instant runoff ranked choice voting is, a, is superior to that. Right. But it seems like one similarity between these two systems is that, again, they're both electoral in nature. Yes. And I think this reinforces a comment we've made in the past, which is the way we think about our politics is very electoral focused, right? So whatever problems we have must be problems originating in the electorate. And the solution to those problems automatically arises in that sphere of our politics. Well, I mean, and I guess this gets to Julia's question. question. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So this is this is an empirical question. And I know we need to wrap up soon, but is there any evidence? How does this affect incumbency? Is this does this make incumbents safer or, or less safe? What ranked choice voting? Yeah, or does it matter? Is there any evidence uh, about that? In, I mean, I, incumbency is in, in in the systems with ranked choice voting. It's not. It's no higher or lower than it is compared to other systems. So I don't think there's, as far as I know, there's no effect. I mean, Um, just thinking out loud, it seems to me that as the geographic uh, expanse of the the electorate gets larger, so you move from municipal to state to nation or statewide, district-wide things, it may make it even reinforce that tendency because of name, ID, uh, familiarity with the incumbent, that sort of thing. Yeah, that was. I mean, that was kind of what I was. What I was thinking was, is this, does this make it harder for incumbents to to lose? But you know, maybe not if it ultimately allows for people who were who are in a similar place ideologically to get, you know, to get more access to, um, not ballot access, but access to votes. But yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. 
James, to, to your question, like, like why, why focus on electoral systems? And I mean, I, I'm a little obsessed with electoral systems, but they do determine the, the number of parties. They determine the, the, the quality of the parties. They determine the incentives that guide politicians. So, I mean, to me, electoral systems are the, the key piece in understanding how parties represent voters and how parties form and build coalitions because everything is geared towards winning elections. No, and I think that's, I think that's fair, and I, and I would agree with that. And electoral systems are vitally important. I think the difference today is that we often look at electoral systems as the silver bullet, when in reality, it's the lack of action in between elections and that create a lot of the, the problems and the frustration. And of course, these two things are interacting with each other. And ranked yes. choice voting could absolutely solve a lot of these problems. But the question is, on its own, is it capable of solving problems that the current electoral system seems to be incapable of solving? And it's not from my perspective, it doesn't appear to be anything intrinsic to that system because that system has worked in the past. Well, right? but the parties were different. Yeah, and, and they're going to be different in the future, right? And so I guess the question is, what else is not happening? And I think that kind of draws us back towards the the institutions and what's happening in between them. And I think when the major players in our politics begin to see policy being made in elections, not in between elections, and of course, it's not one or the other, but it's like if you want to reform healthcare, you win the election. That's the way we think about it. But when we think about it in those terms, we're always going to be, it seems to me, frustrated because we don't have the second step, which is then you've got to kind of hustle, bargain, kind of, you know, all of the other things that you do in between elections. And ranked choice voting may absolutely help people do those things. But I think we have to distinguish between those two separate sets of questions. Yeah, and I feel a little bit of skepticism about the degree to which particular electoral designs affect the incentives that politicians have while they're making policy or not making policy. Obviously, I think electoral considerations are driving a lot of it. And I think that the system matters in how that's considered. But I also think one of the things we're talking about here is changes in implementation in an existing system with a long, weighty history. And so I think it's a little bit different. The questions as we, you think about how to reform an electoral system are a lot different than the questions you would think about if you're kind of designing a system from from the bottom up from a country that's transitioning from non-democracy or you know a new newly forming nation those are really qualitatively different and that's where it's not clear to me like ranked choice voting could have solved some of these problems at a different point had it been implemented at a different point in our history um, I'm not sure that it would that it would overcome some of the existing the existing terrain of the substance of the debates well, I can't say Lee and I disagree on a lot, but if it helps get more people involved in the process, if it helps give more voice to more people and helps them kind of choose people who will act on their behalf, then 100% sign me up. I'm I'm on board. I need to, to read more about it. I need to learn more about it. But um, But I think that's the way we should be thinking about our politics right now and the problems that we face. How do we help actors in between elections act and what kind of electoral systems will facilitate that action? Amen. Yeah, that sounds good to me. All right. So you guys raised some good good criticisms of ranked choice voting. I have to think a little bit more. Anybody anybody change? I'm, I'm still a supporter of it. Yeah, I'm waiting for more evidence on the voter turnout stuff. Yeah, well, we should run some experiments. We got Maine, maybe some other states, and, and, and we'll learn something. Thanks for listening to this episode of Politics in Question. To learn more, you can find our Twitter accounts and website links in the show notes. Anything we've cited or referred to will be there as well. Politics in Question is a joint product of New America and the R Street Institute, 
Elena Soros is our producer and a research associate in the Political Reform Program at New America. Griffin Tanner is our audio engineer, and Jason Stewart is our production manager. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.